Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actress and director Olivia Wilde. It's been four years since Olivia Wilde last visited Off Camera, and a lot has changed. She's had another child, taken a step back from acting, and embarked on a completely different career path as a director. As she says, I almost feel like someone who's come out of the closet. There's this feeling of honesty about what I really want to do, and it's a level of comfort that comes from being true to yourself that I haven't felt in a long time. Booksmart, her first feature film, offers a unique perspective on friendship and identity during one of the most tumultuous times in life, the high school years. Being an actress for so long allowed Olivia to see behind the curtain into the directing process. Whether it was Martin Scorsese on the set of Vinyl, Ron Howard on the set of Rush, or Reed Morano on Meadowland, but learning what not to do from her less positive experiences was equally important. As she tells it, knowing that my actors were walking onto a set that was the exact environment that I would have wanted for myself felt really great. I used all my bad experiences for something good. A perfect example of that was shooting a sex scene on a truly closed set on Booksmart. At times, acting in television and film was an isolating experience for Olivia, who would often be brought in to shoot a scene and then promptly whisked away to her trailer. She felt more like a caged circus animal than a creative human being, and she longed for a more collaborative environment. Olivia joins off camera to talk about the importance of zooming out on your life every once in a while, why cell phones are the enemy of storytelling, and how Converse high tops can double as chastity belts. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Liv. Hi. Thanks for doing this. I'm so happy to be back. It makes me realize how long it was. It, how it long was, was four it? Four years since you've wow. been here. And wow. And this is an incredible time to talk to you because you've just directed this amazing film, Book Smart. But I feel like, number one, how much your life has changed since you've been here. Mm-hmm. You've had another child. Mm-hmm. You've, you've directed this film. You've like taken a completely different tack in your career. It just shows you, when you go through life, you may think nothing is changing, mm-hmm. but just to take a three and a half, four year look at your life and see that Absolutely. it's completely different. Now. Completely different. I think we're going to have to meet every four years yeah, let's so that do I that. have a chance to reflect and be like, oh, wow, <laughs> I have been doing something. Yes. Because, or else you're just kind of trucking along. It's like you're driving on a road and you only realize later that you were driving along a coast and that things were bending. It's like when in doubt, zoom out and you see how much kind of how much you've you've covered, how much space, how much time, how many changes. But when you're in it, you're just in it. Yeah. We don't take enough time to celebrate and honor our lives as they're passing. And we don't... Anytime. I mean, but I think stopping to sort of take stock yeah. is important. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that speaks to the power of ritual, which we don't really have a firm grasp on in this country, because I think... The whole idea of faith has been sort of co-opted by the right wing. But really the beauty of faith, if you tap into the core and original nature of it, is a chance to reflect and be grateful and to zoom out. But we don't do it. We don't do it at all. And when most Americans have two weeks maximum vacation time, there's no chance. It's not encouraged. It's almost as like we're being told, like, just keep going, keep going, don't look around. Don't notice that, like, the earth is on fire. Well, and I think that our technology makes us do that too because there's never sort of a moment where we're forced to zoom out because we, we can zoom a, right in all the time. What if iPhones were all timed like every couple weeks an alert would go off that was like reflect. 
It would be like an Amber Alert for yeah. your soul. Or what if it just shut down? I mean, that's really affected screenwriting, hasn't it? Because the, the yeah. phone is now this shortcut that gets rid of all these fun, you know, strategies for storytelling. Because it's like, why don't they have their phone? I mean, when we were making yeah. Booksmart, it was why a Why are they thing. going over to that person's house to ask them? Exactly. Why, why wouldn't they, they look it up? Them? And young people are so tuned to that. They, they watch and they call bullshit immediately because they're like, you just call. Just look it up. Yeah. But you have to remove that device from the narrative in order for there to be any sort of interesting journey. Well, that's a lesson right there, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, I find, like, now in New York, this, the phones work underground. It used to be that, like, you kind of had to look around and be like, You're on the right. subway, yeah. I was on a train the other day that stalled under the river. It was a C train, stalled under the river. The lights went out, and the train tilted. And I was like, well, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. We're all going to die. We're going to drown under the East River. And yet, everyone stayed totally connected to their phones, which were still working. And it was all faces glowing in phone light. And I was like, no one's going to say anything. We're not going to say anything. We're just going to, okay, I see. We're just going to kind of like get through this by ignoring it. But at what point, and it happened, it lasted for 20 minutes, which to me felt like hours. Wow. And I was like, at what point is someone going to be like, help? <laughs> right. Is anyone else scared? But it's like, we just like, just muscled through it, staring into the phones. And I was like, but when our batteries die, then we're going to have to Then we're around. really... <laughs> It's like two days from now, everyone's yeah. really going to connect. Yeah, some we're going to have to eat somebody here. Yeah, so phones are going to have to come down. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny if you look at your sort of um, just what you've done the last few years. You haven't acted as much, right? And I'm sure from age nineteen, twenty on, you were on that very treadmill you're talking about oh, yes. of keeping your head down and not zooming out. Yeah. And I was curious if stepping back a little bit had an unintended or or an effect that that you couldn't have planned. Absolutely. I mean, I think for me, childbirth, I think it happens for a lot of actresses. But for me, having a kid was forced um, reflection time. It was like, take this moment to zoom out. Take this moment to reflect and to pause and to wonder if you need to jump right back on that treadmill. Because up until that point, I had worked constantly. Like, that was the first time that I had said, I'm not going to work. I'm just going to say no to things. Because before then, it was about just gleaning as much information and experience as possible from and everything. And not even really thinking about the Not even picture. thinking about I just was there working and learning on the job and studying directors and what they were doing and learning from other actors. And then realizing, like, I don't know if I want my life to be defined by how much work I've done. I yeah. want to be proud of things. But I also don't need to be super famous I don't need to be super rich. These aren't things that I need to survive. And I think once that became crystal clear, I was like, oh, so I just want to work with fun people and do cool shit. So you didn't ever have the thing of, if you don't reach a certain place, then there's something inherently tied into your self-worth. I think I reached a point when I realized that that wasn't, whatever the, tr the kind of established path that, that existed for actors. That successful path, like that, I didn't identify with it. I think acting is really isolating. You know, an actress is brought into a production after so much work has been done, right? Right. And kept very separate from the rest of the, the kind of artists and technicians involved. Right, we don't need you on set until... Don't need you on set. Keep them isolated, keep them yeah. protected. Keep, it's as if they're like, kind of like, um, circus animals that have to be kept sort of like like relaxed and quiet in a cage and just keep them like well fed and watered and then release them right when you need them to do the trick and then put them back in the cage. It's kind of true. And those trailers are so sweet. It's like 
Well, it's, this is okay. I've had sweet ones and really, really depressing, sad ones where you're stuck inside. You're like, what have I done? I Let me out. out of college. But I think for me, I never got the hang of that rhythm because you're kept isolated and waiting. Then you're brought onto set, activated for a very short period of time, asked to do something completely insane, which is to be completely relaxed and vulnerable in the middle of what feels like a construction site, right. and told like, all right, thank you very much, now leave, now leave, now leave, and then work is done, and then you're brought back a couple hours later. You know, I remember really trying to learn how to knit, because I saw a lot of actors knitting on set, and I was like, is that how you survive this? Like, you just do right. something? To... So it was around that time when I was like, I need to find the path that will really satisfy me and make this fun again. Yeah. And I realized that what I love about the whole process of making movies is collaboration. I was never good at sports. So for me, it's like my team sport. I really love it. And I thought the person who gets to collaborate the most, the person who's always in the center of the most fun part of the action is the director. Right. People who just want to be career actors are, are really impressive to me and really special. And they have uh, an equilibrium that... I could never quite get the hang of. They're able to sort of stay sane, even in that madness of a process. Well, you know, it makes me wonder, as you, as you sort of discovered that about yourself, did you also sort of start identifying traits in you that maybe innately you are a director? Because I do think that I've looked at my own journey and, and the things that I think make me able to do that job also got me through a lot of other things like yes in yes. childhood yes and and then you get older and you sort of put together and you go oh that skill i had yeah of not getting beat up in childhood is actually helpful absolutely yes now that specifically i'm specifically that not getting beat up like i think the ability to empathize with various mindsets and uh be able to communicate with lots of different types of people with different ways of thinking like that is a survival technique yeah. that works very well for directing. And surviving is a good way to describe directing. Yeah, directing is just surviving with enthusiasm. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good way <laughs> and to put and it. never showing fear. Like that, that's another thing that I think I grew up with a, a, like a stiff upper lip. I didn't, I was, you know, I, my sister and I grew up riding horses and the goal was to fall off a hundred times. Whoever fell off the horse a hundred times first was a real rider. So really? we would get like thrown off these giant horses and get really beat up and then limp home being like, I did it, Dad! We did it! I fell off again! 72! Like this was our, did you keep that score? was the goal. She was so far ahead of me so early that I was like, whatever, she's winning. Maybe that was reverse psychology. She's Maybe. like Maybe. a way worse horse rider than <laughs> she, you. <laughs> she was, honestly, my sister Chloe is better at everything than me. And actually, as you what get older. What films has she made? She, well, she, except directing, that's the one thing. <laughs> one thing I have over her now, she's a great actress. I remember being in high school and she was already like the most brilliant student in the world and an incredible visual artist. And then she was the lead in her high school senior play, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. And I had a full-on existential meltdown. I was just like, no, it's my thing. Which was like, what? I'm five years younger than her. And I was like, what was wrong with me? It's true with sisters, though. I have two daughters that are very close in age. And, and if one person is doing something, that's, it's off limits to it's the other It's off one. limits. My yeah. kids already have that two and five. Yeah. I'm like, you can both do you that thing. You can both play music. Yeah. So for me, I, I, I think that the, you know, the idea of like falling off a horse and being proud of it and only making you a better rider, the idea of like being not unemotional, not overly tough, 
but but being able to be strong and not really let yourself like be discouraged by your vulnerability, accept your vulnerability. It's gonna hurt when you fall off the horse, but don't let it discourage you. You get right back on. That right. kind of mentality that we were raised with, I think is essential for directing and really leads you to this idea of like never show fear, keep going, solve the problem, listen. I mean, truly, motherhood prepared me for directing better than anything else though. Like what could be better prep? Right, and what could be harder than directing except motherhood? Except motherhood, true. Yeah. But like there were moments on set where you know, people would say like, wow, you're, you're, you're really calm and you're really, you just have a calm demeanor. And I was like, I have changed a diaper at 35,000 feet with another <laughs> screaming person also wedged into a tiny airplane bathroom with yeah. me. Like once you've done that, what's hard? So I do think all, yeah, it, it, it's interesting though to reflect on your childhood as to what, what kind of survival techniques and what character traits actually were always there leading you to this path. Yeah. I almost feel like someone who's come out of the closet. Like there's this feeling of like honesty about who, what I really want to do and what I feel my role is. And it's like a, it's a, it's a level of comfort I haven't felt in a long time of sort of being true to myself. Yeah, can you describe the feeling of walking on set as an actor versus walking on set as a director? Well, as an actor, I always felt like, why are we first of all like called the talent and then kept kind of separate from the crew? And then you're brought in front of the crew and kind of, placed there and the idea is like no one's really supposed to engage with you right. and again we go back to the circus animal like you're like 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 as though something might go wrong you might freak out and like eat everyone because you're the lion who's been like brought out with a cattle prod and it's just like sitting there and they're like shh just wait till it does the trick you know what I mean yeah I have always loved sets where there is a more democratic environment and there's a fluidity and a and a, and a closeness between an equality between the cast and the crew and that for me, has when I have done my best work. It's when I've had the most fun. It's been the best experience. So as a director, that's what I wanted to create. Yeah. So my experience as a director walking on set, I not only felt good as a director feeling like, this is great, this is my team, and I'm their coach, and we're all a well-oiled machine, but also knowing that my actors were walking onto a set that was exactly the environment that I would want for myself. Right. It felt like I'd used all my bad experiences for something good. <laughs> right, and, and I think as a director, there's no conversation that you're not in, there's no information being kept from you. So true. Mm, yeah. This is tapping into some other childhood stuff. What are you guys talking about? What's happening? I was a middle child, so it was like, what's happening? Where are we going? So I really liked being able to bring the actors into the process and to say like, listen, I'm gonna ask you to do it again. It's not because you did anything wrong. It's because X, Y, and Z is happening logistically. And, I, and let's take this opportunity to try something different. Or you know, just wanting them to feel a, um, a, just a deeper connection to the process. Yeah. So that happened in lots of different ways. Like I got to do something that I never had done as an actor myself, which is um, rehearse with actors on location, which was so helpful. Especially when you're, when you're telling a story about young people who, and you know, their bedrooms. And, and allowing the actresses to be in their bedrooms, their environments. Because as a teenager, right. your bedroom is your kingdom. You can't, as an actor, walk in to a location for the first time and be like, okay, we're ready in Yeah, okay, that's your favorite seconds. chair. Everything important to you has happened in that chair and action. And you're like, <laughs> what is it? I don't even know. And it happens so often. Another thing that was really formative for that whole process of how am I going to do this differently? How am I going to create the experience I always wanted? 
was theater. I, I did this play on Broadway. I That's did 1984, right. which was an insane experience. And being a part of a production that big that is, um, rests entirely on the actors and their preparedness and their chemistry and professionalism. You were and a company. It was a company, exactly. Yeah. And I, I yearned for that feeling on a film set, the, I, the feeling of the theater company, where everyone participates in everyone else's work. Right. But I thought, what if, what if we prepare like we're making, we're, we're putting on a play? So I had everyone off book before we started shooting. So no scripts on set. No scripts, which I stole from Scorsese. That's a Martin Scorsese thing that I learned from doing vinyl, um, which is initially terrifying. You know what, though? I have to give you credit for that because it's one thing if you're Martin Scorsese, you could say no scripts on set. No one's going to call you on that. I know. People are like, like, first film. (laughs) I know. But the other thing was logistically it was necessary. We had 26 days to shoot the whole movie. So we were not going to get it done if people wasted time on set learning lines. And I said, I'm going to give you three takes for every shot. That's it. I need three completely different choices so that we can actually find something here. If you show up rehearsing your lines, we're screwed. It's just not going to happen. And you're not going to feel good about it. So just take this challenge, learn everything, walk onto set. And the reason I didn't want to allow sides is because it's a subconscious crutch. It it really, you can feel actors kind of like looking for their sides or just yearning to look down. And it's, it's not helpful. So... It was it was enforced very um, seriously, and and they liked it. And now all these kids are like, I want to do that for every movie. You know, I, that's a credit to you. I mean, I I've directed TV where, like, if you open the drawers in the kitchen, oh my gosh, every Small drawer side. you open, there's sides, the fruit bowl oh, under completely. the grapefruit. <laughs> and I've been so guilty of that. I mean, I, I've done, when, when we were making House, the dialogue was so complex, and of course right. it's being rewritten. All this the medical jargon. Before. And, and so that we needed those sides, right. and it's a specific. Although, I have to give Hugh Laurie credit, he's a genius, of course, but he was completely off book all the time, and doing an accent, and limping. Right. So there was times I was like, we have no Well, he's excuse. a proper theater actor. He's a he? real actor. Yeah. And we were just like hacks, <laughs> but having so much I fun. I don't think we should disparage <laughs> your career. No, but it's really, it's really fun now to look back and think about all those experiences and think about like what... I learned from each of them. I mean, television is such a great training ground. Because it goes so fast. Yeah, like I, I remember when we were prepping Booksmart and Scott, the AD said, you know, sometimes we're going to have to do seven pages a day. And I was like, <laughs> seven? Seven. I've done 10 pages a day for years. Right. So I think television is actually a great training ground for efficiency on sets because you're just like, let's move. And yeah. everything is boiled down to its kind of essential moments. Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Lightstream. Now I know we've all had credit card debt from time to time, and especially in the creative fields, there are times when you want to max out your credit cards so you can max out your creative potential. And sometimes that credit card debt is just the cost of doing business. And now you can refinance with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. It's not only a great way to save some extra money, but it's also a way to start paying less interest on your credit card balances. Depending on the size of your loan, it's an easy way to save hundreds to thousands of dollars and lower your interest rate. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.95 APR with AutoPay. That's lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 19% APR. And there are absolutely no fees, and you can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. 
Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. So, just for the listeners of Off Camera, you can apply now to get a special interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash camera. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash camera. And here's our disclaimer. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.5 auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash camera for more information. And now back to the show. You're in an enviable position as a director who has spent so much time acting. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about that advantage and how you decided to use it and if you really paid special attention to that part of it for mm. them. I definitely felt most confident in my skills as an actor's director. You know, in those moments of communicating with the actors, I felt just completely in my element. Yeah, like, felt, like knowing all the things that didn't work yes. when you were acting. I could feel at all moments what would be the best and worst thing to offer them because I could feel what they were going through. So in the middle of a tricky scene where things are not working perfectly, I knew that the worst thing I could do was say to them, it's not working perfectly. Right. Which a lot of directors don't know is actually not helpful. They will say it. They'll say like, it's not, it's not working. What can we do? Which is death to an actor. It's like they are on this high wire for you, this high wire of their own emotions and hypnotizing themselves to be in alternate universes. And you come over and say it's not working, it's like you just tip them off, you just like shove them off. Right. Instead it's like, okay, stay with me, stay on this wire. I have this and I think we need to move it in a different direction. It's so delicate. Is it ever that in your head it's like, if I was really being honest, I would yeah, say... this is a disaster, it's not working. Because of your own insecurity and fear. Yeah, I think so. I think that there's times when you know it is absolutely unusable, right. but to tell them that is the worst thing you could do. Sure. So you have to realize it's not working at all and think, pivot very quickly and guide them into the right place. Yeah. I mean, I, I was fascinated by Scorsese and the way he would direct. He would do this inception thing where he makes you think you've come up with the idea of how to fix a scene. So he'd be like, oh, it's so good. I wonder, it makes, it's, making me, it's making me wonder about, I wonder if we took it, what, what, what about this? What if we took it in the street? What if you asked him the question? What if you asked him the question? What about, and you're like, right. And, I, and then I, I, I would ask him the question, and I was like, that's it. That's it. You figured it out. That's what it is. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And it's so plainly obvious, but in the moment, you're like, I think I just solved this for Martin Scorsese. I don't know. I think I'm, I got I'm really good at this. But it's like a way of guiding, guiding actors like children. It's so similar to parenting. Of right. like you just have to always offer them opportunities to find the right way on their own. It just won't work if you tell them what to do. Gosh, you're just making me reflect on all my parenting. <laughs> Not even my directing. I'm fine just with that. Parenting. It's the parenting. I'm like well, God, Isn't how it many amazing? times do I mean, I your fail kids are older now, but like, think back to the tantrum days, like the days that I still have with my kids. Oh, I'd be like, this totally isn't working it's, for me. <laughs> but like, saying, telling them like, stop crying. Yeah. Doesn't work. They're just gonna cry. Well, harder. I'm still testing that. Right. It's, no, it's you're very right. funny in that that is exactly what directing actors is about. So if it's not working, it's not about telling them that and stopping the creative flow. It's like diversion. It's just like gentle. I mean, it's like. 
This sounds so corny, but I, I'm not even good at it, but I love wheel pottery. I love ceramics. Yeah. And something I love about it is it's like you have to be so balanced and you have to be so patient and you can't be pushy and you have to be able to correct things very gently and you have to be able to ease things back into shape or recognize when it's taken on another shape and then follow that shape. But it's like it is a very kind of gentle, zen-like art. And I think that that is the experience of directing actors and it is... It is delicate. You have to understand how kind of trippy that process is before you just start saying like, no, do it faster, be sad. I think you're sad, be sad, I think she's sad now. It's like, what are you talking about? Like I'm in this mental state that, you know, that means nothing to me. You have to like tap into where I am. Do you remember an early experience that really like took you off the rails that that still stands out that you're still protective of your actors today because of? I can remember early days, and often it used to happen on TV when TV wasn't as great and didn't attract the best directors. Now it does. But just directors being like, cry. (laughs) (laughs) Eating a giant, like, sandwich. Sitting in a chair. Cry. I'm thinking, like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then it became a skill that people thought was a sign of good acting. Like, tell me to cry and I'll cry. Like, that is such a bad example for other actors to see and think, like, oh, is that what this is about? Like, no, that's training a, a, a show pony. That's not, like, it's not asking someone to show you the truth. Because I think that's the thing. It's like, directors can't tell actors what to do, or else, like, you might as well just animate a film. Because you can exactly. animate a performance. That's there for you. If you're working with real humans, you have to share the creative agency and say, like, Tell me who this person is. How does it feel if this is actually less of an argument and more of a seduction scene? Like, let's play with these things and find the truth of it. I just found that to be the most fun part. I mean, I was just, like, lit up. Well, your pottery example is great because you said that sometimes you have to be able to coax it back into the shape you want it to be. But other times, if it goes... Then you're like, that's what Caddy it is Wampus, now. You're like, we're Caddy you're like, Wampus now. Like we're going that way. Like all my pots that become ashtrays. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm always like, this is going to be a giant vase. Oh, no, it's not. Here's an ashtray. <laughs> Add it to the pile. Countless times on, on this set, on Booksmart, just seeing like, oh, that's not what I thought it was going to be, and I like this better. And remaining um, curious in the moment. You can do all the preparation in the world, but I love that the day will offer opportunities that you never could have prepared for. The day of shooting. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, it's funny when you get a script, whether you write a film or whether you get a script, if you're the director, you have to pre-visualize yeah. the world and, and every scene. Yeah. But then on the day, you have to be able to let it go. Completely let it go. You have to be aware that each stage is an entirely new reality. Right. And that they're kind of, it's like isolated stages of the process that you have to recognize as such so you don't say like but when we wrote it right. it worked out this way I mean, well and that's even interesting because when you take a script that someone else wrote and you have to adapt it to yes. what you see because I know this script languished for a while yes. right yes and did it ha- was it with other directors and other yeah producers? it had a whole life before me so when you saw it you were able to to envision it in a way that got everyone to line up well I think sometimes a script is out there that sparks an idea that feels relevant and so it keeps kind of returning in the industry. And people say, like, there's the script out there. But, but, but the elements haven't come together completely to make it work. Yeah. And I think that Booksmart was one that was written in 2009 by two writers, Emily Halpern and Sarah Haskins. And it was on the blacklist. And people yeah. were really excited about it. And it was a totally different movie. But 
it had the core idea of two really smart girls who were best friends. A couple years later, in like 2014, Susanna Fogel came on board, rewrote it, and was for a time attached to direct it. And she updated it quite a lot, changed it. It still was very different from the movie we made, but it was very different from the original. So it went through this like second stage. Then that one also didn't make it into production. Like so many films don't. It just takes, right. it's a miracle when a movie actually I makes know. it to like, production. Like they get momentum for a while and then someone doesn't return a call and it, exactly. a few weeks and that's it. It's amazing how everything can fall apart because of the tiniest thing. And so she went on to do great things. It didn't make its way to production, went back on the shelf. And then two years later, Jessica Albaum, who runs Gloria Sanchez, and I were producing a television show together, we're trying to, we were shopping a comedy series around town, and she said, you have to direct a feature. And I was like, I know, well, I don't know. I, I guess it's gotta be something I write, because I figured it had to be. I figured your first film has to be entirely from your own self. And she said, you should just read Booksmart. And I read it, and I was like, this is amazing. This is an amazing idea. I have a take on it that's pretty different from where it is now, but I can see it in my head. Can I pitch on it? And she was like, pitch to Annapurna, go for it. So I pitched them the version of the movie that you can now see. And to their credit, they were like, great. I mean, it was like a bonkers pitch. I'd never done a studio, studio pitch before, and I was like, okay. Did you over-prepare and make totally. it crazy? Totally. You did. Yeah, and, and I, you know, Reed Moreno had been a great... Um, mentor for me on pitching as well because she's like just pitch the hell out of it just like she goes hard with pitches like she creates the most beautiful decks you've ever seen and then she's like this is the only movie worth making and I love that attitude like go in saying like I'm here to solve your problem I know how to make your movie do you want me to make it for you I'm not interested in making anything but this version that I have in my head because that's what that's what I feel so I went in and I was like this movie is training day for high school <laughs> And they were like, what? And I was like, it's training day because high stakes, high stakes buddy cop drama. I was like, that's what high school feels like. It's like you got your buddy who's got your back, who's willing to take a bullet for you, who loves you. And you might be very different from them like in every great buddy cop movie ever made. But the loyalty is so strong and you go on adventures side by side. And they were like, interesting. And I was like, and I wanted to be Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein. And, I mean, I was very specific, in a way, like, talking my way out of an opportunity. Because they could have easily been like, no. And then and you'd I'd be like, like ah. and you had already set it up that, like, it's my yeah. way or the highway. <laughs> so, luckily, they were like, that's great. And Chelsea Barnard, who was in Annapurna at the time, she was like, cool, I like it. It sounds like you have a really clear vision. I was like, Did I you have that do. moment where it's like, you've already gotten the yes, but you're, you're still like, convincing them? Yeah. And they're like, great. So, I went, and I'm like, because. And they're like, no, it sounds great. But we left, and I was like. I feel really good about that. And then suddenly terrified, like, I now have to make this movie. I just talked my way into the hardest job of my life. Hey, folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about the podcast Stroke of Genius. Have you ever asked yourself, why didn't I think of that? Or used something that made life so much easier and wondered, who came up with that? You know, the protection of our intellectual property is what helps great ideas come to life. We all have our own intellectual property, but so many of us never follow through with trademarking, copywriting, or patenting our brilliance. Subscribe to Season 2 of Stroke of Genius, where host Andrea Madho chats one-on-one -on -one with some of the world's greatest innovators about how intellectual property protections help push their ideas to greater heights. 
Season two guests include author and thought leader Temple Grandin, IBM technology strategist Lisa DeLuca, and inventor Kenton Lee. Learn how these innovators were inspired to turn their thoughts into things. Subscribe to Stroke of Genius on Apple Podcasts at ipoef.org or your favorite podcast platform. This is a film that's set around graduating from high school, and it's a time of tremendous upheaval in yes. life. And it made me wonder how much of your personal story got baked into that, yeah. even subconsciously or consciously. Oh, yeah. Because I would think you would have to make the movie your own. You have to. Whether it was written by you or not. You have to. That, And it's an interesting process kind of personalizing someone else's material but actually that's where acting comes in again I had spent my whole career personalizing other people's words so that's what I did with this I thought I'm going to hire a screenwriter to rewrite this to match the vision I have for it and to show me new things so we brought on Katie Silberman who's like just one of the greatest writers working she's amazing and when I said to her things like I want them to to trip and and imagine that they are, they've shrunk down to being tiny little Barbies. And then that's because they've become the physical manifestation of the patriarchy, right? And then this happened, she was just like, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that was really amazing because I was kind of bearing my soul to her with all these weird ideas and instincts. And she was putting it into real kind of logical script form. But at the end of it, I was able to say like, wow, I'm baked into this because... I have to in order to make it my own. Because I think if you don't personalize something as a director, then when you hit a snag and you lose a location or an actor or whatever, you don't have a guy to tell the story. Right? You're yeah. like, well, I don't know, I don't know what's important. If you personalize it, then you always know the essential element of the scene. Was there one actor that that was sort of you more than anyone else? Was it Caitlin? Well, it's or funny it- because the characters, I feel like I I was each of them at different times, which is kind of what I was trying to say with the movie is, n- everyone always tried to put me in a box in high school. They couldn't figure out who I was, and it bothered people. There's a lot of that in the film. Yeah. It's a lot of, like, everyone's felt misunderstood. I certainly have, and my my desire was to make a film that really made us question, why have we put each other in boxes? Why are we doing it to ourselves? So it was like, let's illuminate what takes us usually several years into maturity to realize is that we are all totally multidimensional and complex and nuanced and, and everyone's going through their own shit. I, I knew I was responding to my high school experience through all of that. Was high school hard for you? Yeah, it was hard. It was intense. I went to boarding school. You did? Which is very intense. All girls? No. That would have been great. I would have gotten a lot more work done. <laughs> I was very distracted by boys. I yeah. was like, this is great. They live here? Um, I like that you looked at Nate when you said that. <laughs> I was like, I see you, Nate. <laughs> but I really think high school for me was that experience intensified because we all lived together. There's no escape. You must, I mean, the only two places where you really have to organize yourself into kind of boxes that quickly in order to survive, it's really high school and prison. And it's like, who are you going to be? You have about five minutes to choose and establish who you are, or else we'll do it for you. So it's like a terrifying thing to ask a young girl who's still figuring herself out to pick a lane. Right. And I arrived, you know, I was like from D.C. I was, I was the city kid who showed up in a suburban boarding school that was like very conservative. And I was like, I'm a theater kid, but I also like to hang out with athletes, and I love my teachers, and I love school, 
But like the goth kids are kind of interesting. They have some cool music. And then like, you know, the like the lesbians have some cool stuff going on over there. But people were like, you better pick a lane because it doesn't make sense that you're friends with all these different people. Yeah, no, I what I hear you saying <laughs> is that is that you you had all the tools you needed to do what you're doing now. Yeah. And high school tries to beat that out of it everybody. It does. It really does. If you look back, what was the what was the picture of the hardest thing that you had to deal I with? I think because I succumbed to it at times. I would say right. like, okay, in order to survive, like this feels like a safe pocket over here, and these people, um, you know, I, I, they, that feels like a safe place. So I'll just focus on this, and then you lose relationships. So when I look back and I think like, I wish I just had the confidence to always rise above it and say like, I don't need anyone. But it's so scary to be alone at that age. Yeah. Which is why that friend that you make at that age is so essential. It's a soulmate and it's, it's, it's your, your teammate. I mean, it's, it's like you're on the battlefield and that person is there to like check your six. Did you I'm, have that one? That I person? had that, I had that. And then I went through like a really traumatic experience where my best friend got kicked out of school. And I was like alone. And I remember walking through campus and I'm being just devastated. Right. Well, it makes sense that, that you make a film that, about this bond that it was so high stakes. That yeah. Yeah. Because exactly. you lost it right at the time you right. needed yeah. it. Yeah. And I definitely went through this experience of like my kind of chosen sister getting kicked out of school. And I was like, well, who am I now? Because your identities fold into each other. Especially at that age. Especially yeah. at that age. And it's, it's a process, I think, of kind of separation which is necessary for evolution like this is a huge generalization but I think men at a young age have an easier time within their relationships expressing um, discomfort or or uh, disappointment so like boys who are friends are really good at being like stop doing that I hate when you do that or I don't want to go to the party with you I don't want to do that I'm gonna go home go away that kind of thing they're not as good at saying I love you so much. I just want to hold you and tell you how much I love you because you're the greatest. And yeah, I miss no, you when you're away. We're not so good at that. No, and it's the inverse for women. And again, I, I acknowledge this is like a huge generalization, but I think for young women, it's we're so good at being like, I love you. You're amazing. You're so smart. I just want to like lie on top of you and hold you because you're just the greatest thing in the world. And But it's very hard for young women to say like, stop doing that. I don't want to go with you. I don't want to choose the same thing right. as you. It feels like betrayal because the loyalty is so valuable, because the partnership is so intense, that when one person moves away and Diverging says, like, is hard. It's very hard. That's and I think a lot of young women go through this trauma of saying, I, I'm sensing that I'm supposed to diverge, I'm supposed to evolve, but I feel that's going to be the sacrifice of my greatest love you look back and think there was a trauma from the end of that relationship that we don't really explore. Like society gives us so much context for dealing with the end of romantic relationships or right. the beginning or the middle. It's like there's a hundred million love songs about romances throughout your life. There aren't many about the friendship that was your first truly intimate friendship aside from your parents. The person who knew you better than your parents. Yes, because you let them in. You let them in and then you're like, bye. And it's just a weird thing. We're just supposed to be like, yeah, we're just friends. So it's just like, okay, bye. I'm just like going to college now, bye. And we act like it's normal when it's really like, that's heartbreak. So It makes me wonder if you wanted to become an adult really quickly and get through that process. Yes. I mean, was that the effect of it for you? Was like Completely. I was, that's why the character of Molly in the film, who's just like so ready to be done with high school and move forward and be a Supreme Court justice, I 
dealt with life in exactly that way. I was like, let's just get through all this, this right. stuff that's sort of like hard and complicated and emotional. I'm just gonna like slice through it and focus on the future where I'm working and things are clear. Do you think you missed out on anything? Yeah, when I look back, I'm like, oh man, I could have been a little, you know, I could have slowed down and just enjoyed the experience a little bit more. But I kind of, I, I kind of didn't understand that, that who you are at 17 isn't necessarily who you're going to be ever again. And right. it doesn't matter. It's, you don't need to, like, it's not this great pronouncement of, like, your identity. It's a problem, I think, maybe in American culture more than others, maybe, where we force people to decide who they're going to be for the rest of their life. That's right. By, it's, like, 20. I mean, I took a year off after high school, and then I never went back to school. And, people and you were got like, married right then, I got then married, too. yeah. Another Which, kind of, like, rebellion of sorts. Yeah, because didn't you elope? Yeah. And it was just, like, living in Venice Beach... Got engaged at Burning Man, you know. <laughs> we lived on well, a school you may bus. Have, you may have skipped one experience, but you had another. I had, I always, yeah, it was always like, I mean, I was, I was all about like consuming life. Like life had to be consumed at its like most intense. I just right. wanted everything to feel like my living life to the maximum right now, which is exhausting. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Quip, the smarter electric toothbrush. As you know, Quip has been a sponsor for us for a long time, and I use them in my family. And now is a great time to get into Quip, because with summer starting, we need gifts for dads and new grads. You can get them a one-size-fits-all gift like a new oral health routine with Quip. The guiding features make sticking to good brushing habits simple. And signing them up for a subscription helps them save and refresh their toothbrush on time. And what's a better way to show your love for dear old dad than telling him he needs to take a little more care of his teeth? Well, that's true. We all need to take more care of our teeth. And Quip makes a great gift. So here's why I love Quip. They have just the right pressure of sensitive sonic vibrations. They don't tear your gums up, but they really give you a deep clean. And what I found out is that most people brush too hard and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. So Quip has that figured out. They also have a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides. And the design of Quip is so cool. They have a multi-use cover that works as a stand, mounts to mirrors with this like magical adhesive that never wears out, and it also slides over your bristles to pack and protect your Quip on the go. I used to take cheap throwaway toothbrushes when I traveled and leave my electric toothbrush at home, but now with Quip I get to take the same toothbrush everywhere. It's not bulky, you don't plug it in, and it always stays clean because of the cover. So it's the perfect toothbrush. And best of all, brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. So that's why I love Quip, that's why my whole family uses it, and that's why if you haven't tried it, what are you waiting for? You listen to Off Camera every week, I always talk about Quip, so try it out. And if you love it, send me an email and tell me about your experience. That's sam at offcamera.com. I want to know. Have you tried Quip? Do you love it like I do? Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash offcamera right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash offcamera. Now back to the show. You know, getting married that young, having a serious career yeah. that young, missing the college years, and then feeling like, I got to get hired again, I got to get hired again. 
I wonder if if you had looked up and zoomed out, if you would have just been like, I need to take a nap for a year. Yeah. Like, when you look back at your young life, did it feel like just pressure? It was pressure, but pressure I was putting on myself. Yeah. Like, everyone around me was like, oh, all right, Liv, like, go for it. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I was so, I was, I was, um, so headstrong from a really young age and really an individual, which I'm proud of, but I think, like, I want to go back and tell young me, like, it's just, you can, it's fine. Like, it's not, you can just relax. And yet, I realize that I am where I am now because of all those experiences and all the weird, like, I was remembering the other day, we were playing Truth or Dare. (laughs) And, you know, I I haven't played Truth or Dare in years. (laughs) I didn't know you could play that as an adult. You could still play Truth or Dare. I thought you just played Truth or Dare, like, to make out with people. This was was actually for, like, Booksmart press stuff. But, like, they had us playing Truth or Dare, and I was laughing about Truth or Dare, and I was like, you know what? As a kid, like, I never refused a dare, ever. And that was, like, my badge of honor. Right. It was like, you met me, I don't say no to dares. I also won every eating contest that anyone ever challenged me to. Like, these were things that really? I was like, yeah, it's, like, part of who I am. I don't say no to really bad ideas. <laughs> we missed an opportunity, for sure, on the show today. There's time. We should just bring out a plate of hot dogs. I once ate, I mean, it's terrible. I once ate a, I remember I, I entered a, uh, pancake eating contest in Australia when I was 16. I was there on like a student abroad trip because they were like, women can't win. And I was like, I will win. And I won. I ate like 33 pancakes in 20 minutes. Oh my God. (laughs) So gross. I digress. Point being like- Did you throw up? Yeah, so horrible. It was like, I was also drinking like Malibu rum. So all of these decisions were bad. This is why I think parents even, worry about I their know. children. Oh, God. If my daughter's it's anything like me, I'm in so much trouble. But even further back, like, I was remembering that when I was, like, 10 years old, someone dared me to jump off a pier at low tide. And I was like, yep. And, like, didn't think twice and did it. And now I think back and I'm like, as a parent and as just, like, a more sane adult, I'm like, ooh, I could be paralyzed. It was a terrible thing to do. And I remember I came up out of the water and I looked up and my dad was standing up on a hill above. Like Was he the one who gave you the dare? Yeah, my dad dared. <laughs> no, but he, but I was like, that's someone who's letting his kid be herself. Yeah. And that was kind of astonishing to me. I was like, my dad has always been like, and I mean, my parents, they let me just become who I was. There's so many stages of my life where they could have like shut me down and stopped me from being Olivia. But instead, they were like, this is who she is. That is and the greatest gift. It's great. I and mean, I, I tried to do that. Because it turned out. It turned out okay so far. It yeah. could, if it ends badly, I'll, you know. But, you know, it's like, yes, you do as a parent want to let kids go make their own mistakes, but just not the big so ones. So scary. But so I, like, scary. I try to have this mantra where I look at my kids and I say, I can't wait to get to know you. Because I think we have the sense that we're going to make them who they are. And instead, we have to remember, like, they're te- we're getting to know them. Yeah. And it seems so simple, but I really work on it because it's... Rather than saying, like, no, 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 don't be like that. Don't be like that. As, you know, just letting it be like, okay, so that's who you are. You're a good mom. I'm trying. <laughs> it's funny to think about, like, how I did kind of blast through high school and then went and had this, like, wild adventure of, of my 20s. Yeah. And that the first movie I choose to direct is a high school film. It's like, in some ways, I'm, like, regressing. I'm going back. This is, like, my therapy. Uh, my first film is, like, going back to high school. And now, going forward, I can, like, slowly explore the, the trauma that followed. Right. And I also think it's interesting that you, I'm sure, to these young women that are in the film, you're a mentor, you are sort of a guidepost. Yeah. And I wondered if you thought about your influence or responsibility 
in the message you wanted to give in the film. Like, yeah. like beyond making a film that felt true to you, you sort of have a you have a megaphone here yeah. to speak to women at an extremely vulnerable and influential time in their lives. Completely. I, I take that responsibility seriously. Without getting kind of overly earnest about it, I, I do understand the ramifications of putting a story out into the world. And it's because as an actor, I've run into people around the world who've seen stuff that I've done, and it makes you realize, oh God, we just made that in a studio in LA, but someone around the world is seeing it and it's speaking to them. For instance, I was recently on a plane and this man stopped me and he was from Uganda and he's like, I grew up watching the OC and it was really important to me. And I was like, whoa! Really? We never would have thought it was traveling that far. And I think that has affected the way that I want to direct and what I thought about with Booksmart, particularly in terms of like queer politics. Like I grew up, I mean, I my first kind of role that people knew me from was the OC when I was playing a young yeah, bisexual. bisexual bartender with killer taste in music, <laughs> bad tattoos. And I was like, at the time, sort of flippant about it. I was like, you know, it's great. It's a good gig. It's fun. And then over the years, met people who would come to me and say that had a huge effect on me. I came out to my parents when I watched the show or I came out to my friends or I just felt like I, I might have an okay life. And I was like, whoa. We just were kind of dicking around and telling yeah. this story, and this actually had a profound effect on someone. I'm going to think about what we put out into the world. And, and everybody is influenced by entertainment, yeah. and it's where we find hidden and unexpected emotions at times that we weren't expecting it. Yeah. There's no one immune to that. Yeah. So I thought when you have an opportunity, particularly with a younger audience, to kind of guide them and their perspective, take it seriously. So, for instance, in Booksmart, I thought we're never, you know, we don't need to be cruel to be funny because I think that's been perpetuated by films over the years and it's, it affects the way kids speak to each other and the way they think they need to do in order to one-up each other is to like just be cruel in a way that just isn't necessary. It's low-hanging fruit. You can be funny while being kind and smart. And I thought we can put that out there. Also, to never talk about, you know, avoiding all kind of physical, like body shaming of any kind, I thought... That's something we've subconsciously just established as the way people will relate to one another. What if we never have anyone comment on anyone's appearance ever? Right. We're presenting a, a high school society where everyone is smart and everyone is kind, but people struggle with understanding one another. And, and that is, that's the challenge, understanding someone on a deeper level. Not people calling each other names based on their physical appearance and just being kind of like mean and shitty, just like, it was like, those things are all symptoms of deeper pain. So let's just go right to that and talk about the real issues. Hey folks, let's take a break from the conversation and talk about this week's sponsor, Shady Rays. I don't know about you, but I wear a lot of sunglasses and sometimes I lose them and sometimes I break them and I spend a lot of money on them. Well, Shady Rays has addressed all these concerns. They've designed a line of sunglasses that look really great. They're super lightweight. Their lenses have UV protection that rivals the most expensive brands. And best of all, they're an independent sunglasses company, so they're not some big corporation that overcharges for their sunglasses. Shady Rays is out to do it differently and give people a lot more bang for the buck. Like I said, their shades are polarized and they're made to hold up no matter what you do outside. But here's the best thing about Shady Rays. For all of you that sit on your sunglasses or scratch them up, Shady Rays has the best warranty in all of eyewear. You won't find anything stronger. 
They include free replacements if the shades are lost or broken for any reason. It doesn't matter what happens. You drop them in the ocean, you run over them with your motorcycle, your dog eats them, or you just lose them. I mean, how many times have you left a pair of sunglasses on top of your car or at a restaurant? I mean, I don't know how this works, but Shady Rays will replace them for you no matter what. Try that with your high-priced sunglasses and see what they tell you. So here's what happens. You get an entirely free pair. You just pay a small shipping and handling fee for each replacement, and bam, you're back in business. Even with that strong of a warranty, Shady Rays still managed to make quality that I can tell you Holding in my hand seems just as good as any of the name brands of sunglasses that I've ever worn. The lenses are perfectly clear, and most Shady Rays are only $45. And Shady Rays also provides 10 meals to fight hunger in America with every order placed, and they have provided over 4 million meals to date. They stand behind their product and told our team that if anyone has a problem, they throw profit out the window and they do what it takes to get it right. And they offer free returns and exchanges. You either love the shades or Shady Rays will pay to ship them back. That's it. And here's the best part. Exclusively for our listeners, they gave us the best deal they have to offer. You can use the code CAMERA for 50% off two or more pairs. That's buy one, get one free. So in other words, you can get two pairs for $45. This is the best deal that Shady Rays offers. So go to ShadyRays.com, use the code CAMERA, check out all their newest and best shades, and try them out. You're going to love them. Now back to the show. I wanted to ask you about something because uh, there's there's a scene. It's sort of, I guess it's the sex scene of the movie, although it's not a sex scene at all. Yeah. Um, but it's more true to how awkward those moments are. Yes. And I haven't seen a scene like that that the entire point, it, it wasn't a compromise scene where there's some producer going, well, yeah, it, it's a comedy, so we got to make it awkward, but it's still got to be sexy. Right. It still has to be this, and it has to it has to do this for this audience. And I'm talking sort of in code because I don't want to spoil it. But I wondered if that was specifically a day or a, or a scene where you looked at that and said, "I get a chance to right some wrongs." Oh here. yeah, I was so excited to prove the point that things can be sexy when you don't see nudity, that suggestion is always more compelling than actually showing someone. I mean, it's Jaws. It's like, don't show me the shark. It's scarier when right. I don't see the shark. And I think the same goes for sex Shark? Scenes. What are we talking about here? What's the euphemism? <laughs> Sorry. But I, like, it, was, it was so refreshing to be able to, to plan that scene knowing that I was going to do exactly what we needed to do for the story, which was to have a very awkward kind of coming-of-age sex scene that could have been the same whether it's two girls, a guy and a girl, two guys, like that was irrelevant. But I wanted to, to show the things that movies usually don't show that actually are a real part of the experience, like getting someone's shoes off. I, yes. was, I was so excited. I was like, we are going to show how hard it is to get Converse off of someone's feet when you're trying to take their pants off. I was like, we, so this true. is justice. We must right the wrong. I need I to see. I have been there. It's like, hold on a second. Double knots. Oh, my God. There's so many laces. And then it's still so tight. And then Oh, and jeans. high tops. It's like high tops, sometimes you're like, nightmare. I think I would have gotten somewhere with it's that person if I had worn slip-ons. Converse high tops are By the time you get the belts. shoes off, you're like, is this really good is this idea? worth it? I'm exhausted. And people are like, oh, that's familiar. I've been there. That's something I'm connecting to my personal life. And people are so giddy when they watch this scene because they they understand very quickly we're not trying to be salacious. We're not trying to, like, 
it's it's not a, it's not about like turning you on. It's about tapping yourself back into your first right. experience. And I wanted it to feel um, kind of intimate without being the kind of the, the heightened sexy the version heightened of that. sexy version, yeah. which was like, what is that? That's not real. So. It was a really, it was a fun thing for me to set up knowing that I was also going to be able to, to offer the actors the experience I always wanted when making love scenes, which is like first and foremost, a true close set. It was like the greatest moment in the world when I was like, so, this was like, <laughs> I was like, I've always known that close sets weren't really closed. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna make a real close set. I, as an actress, for a hundred years have been doing love scenes where people are like, it's a close set. And I'm like, there seems to be like 50 people in here. And they're like, oh, everyone in here is essential. Like, really? What is that guy doing? I mean, he's just leaning up against that wall. Oh, he has to be here to watch someone else to make sure that doesn't fall over. It's like, all right. And I have, for so many years, been like, well, I guess we'll just relax in front of like 50 people. But I want to offer a close set, which is just the absolute essential people in the room. So it was me, the actors, the cinematographer who I had to operate for the scene, so to take out one person. Um, and we had our focus puller in the corner and a sound person. And, and I had the monitor. And then I turned off all the other monitors in the rest of the set. Because that's the other thing I, as an actor, have always been like, okay, so we're in this room, but I know what this set, how this works. There's monitors throughout the set, out on the street, in a van. Like, there's monitors everywhere. In Harvey Weinstein's hotel. Harvey Weinstein's there watching the monitors, (laughs) private one. So, like, cut the feed. Let's just have this be truly private so that we can relax. And then we can find something real. How'd that feel as a director to create the, the thing you always needed as an actor? It was the greatest. And it was also, like, so vindicating, because I was like, so it's possible. (laughs) So it is possible. And it was... It was great because the actors themselves felt so safe. At one point, I thought maybe they'd want even me out of the room just so they could just be with each other. And I was right outside the door with my monitor. And they were like, Liv, can you be within, like, arm's reach? And I was like, yes. Yes, of course. So I, I love that you're the director. You took yourself out. You're like, am I really essential? Well, I was like, I'm not home You know, maybe camera. they just want to be like, can, I, can you simula- simulate the experience of being totally alone? And it was so great because everybody was so on board with this. It was like, yeah this is great. Why isn't this always how it is? And I'm really, really, really happy with the scene. And there's all these moments that I don't know if would have happened if we had been in a less private situation. Well, it's the perfect example of looking at the way things are done, the yeah. established way, what you had to do throughout your career yeah. through a different lens. And it, ha- it comes from, I think, like shifting the paradigm from within. You, if you're within something and you understand the mechanics of it, then you can really create change. Right. So my experience as an actor allowed me to understand what we could change on the set. Like, I loved giving this speech the first day of pre-production to the entire crew and the actors where I said... We have a strict no assholes policy on this set. You are all of equal value. You're all essential parts of telling the story. Everybody's ideas are welcome. And just just like shifting the needle slightly and like putting that in people's minds like changed everything. And I was like, this is this is how I always want it to be done. Yeah. But it takes someone who understands the alternative 
and how difficult that can be to, to demand it. But once you're in charge, like you better do things the way you think. If you have spent your life complaining about something and then someone gives you the keys and says like you're in charge, you better do it exactly the way that you think it should be done. Yeah. Or else like what are you doing? You're wasting your time. You know, you've had many years as an actress where you're auditioning, you're getting jobs, you're going on the job, and you're doing what you're told. Yeah. I would assume that there were certain days or certain things that happened where you knew it wasn't right, but you had to go along with it anyway. Yeah. And when you look back now, knowing what you know, um, what would you not accept now that you had to sure. accept then? Well, when I reflect on it, I think about how actresses in particular are made to feel entirely dependent in order to do the work they love. It's, you're so easily replaceable. There's so many of you. You got this job, but we had all these other options. So you've been chosen because... Right, like the guy was attached, and then we had to go find his girlfriend. Always, exactly. Even, I mean, in every case, yes. We found our guy, so the movie was real, and now we can pick a girl. But we've got a hundred options. Yeah. Thousands, maybe. You've been chosen. How lucky are you? So already that puts you in a sort of vulnerable mindset. And it maybe pits you against your colleagues. Well, of- that's, I mean, that's an absolutely true phenomenon. The idea of isolating women. That happens in Hollywood. It happens in society in general. I think society very conveniently tries to just pit us against each other and remind each other, oh, there's only room for one of you, which is a distortion. But that's, that's the idea. That's what's been, we've been told. So within Hollywood as an actress, you are vulnerable to begin with because you've been chosen and you feel that you could lose that opportunity at any point, at which point, if you were to lose the opportunity, you cease to exist. And so... Or if you piss off the wrong person. Piss off the wrong person, you immediately get a terrible reputation and that happens to countless actresses who stood up for themselves at different points and they're told like, oh, she's a nightmare. Easily replaceable. And... I think that when I reflect on it, I think about the amount of time I spent being like, well, I'm not entirely with, just thrilled with this situation, but I really do want this job. And it might be that I don't understand that this is the way it's done. So I'm just going I'm, I'm to, I'm, I'm, I'm a team player and I'm just going to like deal with it. You're also talking about this vindication of doing a sex scene yeah. where you get to close the set. Yeah. And... You know, like that's like some huge achievement and luxury when it should just be the way it is. Right. Completely. You know, it's funny. I think that because we've seen, you know, filmmaking evolve so much in 100 years and and women's roles within filmmaking evolve so much in 100 years. You know, the idea of being an actress was not something that was held in high regard. It was like basically like being a prostitute for a long time. Being an actress was not something that held a huge amount of respect in larger society. Then they were pioneers who shifted that perspective, starting, of course, in theater, but then in film, and we saw that change. But it's really only in the past 20 years, the idea of women waking up to their own power and saying, wait a minute, this industry doesn't actually work without us. Why are we being told that we are entirely dependent on the kind of the, 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 the men who run these studios or traditionally did run the studios kind of organizing your place within it. And I believe now things are changing and women are standing up for themselves and saying like, this is how I want to be paid on this set treated on this set and this is the experience I'm looking for but also I hope they can feel less replaceable and know that each role that is yours can only be yours and that there are countless other roles for you it's not like 
there's just one role that's going to make you a star. And, and so kid, you'll do whatever to get do, that yeah, one Yeah, better role. play along or you'll lose the job and cease to exist. Like it's, I yeah. think that's shifting. But I find it really exciting to start directing at a time where I feel actresses are coming into their power in a new way. And there is a demand for stories not only told by women, but told about women with several female characters, not just like five guys and one girl, which is what it was for so long. Yeah. Well, there's this quote that's following you around in a lot of the press for this movie, which kind of kept coming up. And it was, I'm 35 years old, and this is the first time I've had a job not connected to my looks. My point with that was that actors in general, you are hired based on your physicality. So I've grown up with my parents, my whole family are journalists. My sister's an activist. My friends work in all different fields. And I realized at a certain point, oh, I've never had a job that had nothing to do with my physical being. Like, it's always been something that, that, that was connected to that. And yet here I was at 35, only being valued for my ideas, my brain. Right. It's just, it's so nice to feel like, oh, I could, I, 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 anything could happen to me and it wouldn't matter. I mean, it's like one small example. This is, seems so dumb, but it's only occurring to me now that like when I was doing Tron, um, like I've always loved to snowboard. Yeah. And when I was doing Tron, they said I couldn't do anything physically dangerous because, you know, the studio needs you to not break sure. all your limbs. So I couldn't ski or snowboard. And I remember being with my family and they were all out on the mountain and I was so bored. And I was like, because... More than really what I'm doing up here with this role, it matters if I can like how if I can get into that suit and pretend to sure. fight <laughs> video game characters. Yeah. And I just remember being like, God, no one else in my family, like everyone else could break their legs and still do their job. I can't. And it's like it's a connection to your physical self that I was like, Gah! I just want that to be a thing that doesn't matter. Right. I want to be able to just like grow old and have it doesn't matter i'm just here for my brain so now we've uncovered the secret why you wanted to direct so i can snowboard yes <laughs> unfortunately i'm not very good at it so i will likely get injured i bet chloe's good but it at won't it. matter chloe's really good at it <laughs> is she really mm -hmm. she's like a pro snowboarder now she's fearless yeah well it must be incredibly freeing to to do exactly what you say walk on set and be valued for your brain and not have to worry about being taken back to the cage when the scene's over and have the hair and makeup team, you know, yeah. descend on you. And yeah. It, yeah, it was really, it was really fun to go on set and never sit down. Like people laughed at me that I had this director's chair that on the first day they unveiled and was like, hey, your first real director's chair has your name on it. You're the director. And I was like, that's so great. And it was on the truck the entire time. Because I was like, I can't sit down. Yeah. I finally get to be the one asking all the right questions and having all the answers. I'm hooked on it. I think some people, it's their nightmare. Like some people, I've had people say to me recently like, why, directing sounds so awful. And I'm like, it's, it is a specific kind of thing to want to do. You know what's amazing about directing? The concept of time is completely different than acting. You yes. direct and a 12 hour day goes by and you're like, oh please don't let the day end. Yeah. I, I need just it's another so hour. True. And. Actors and yet the like, actor's experience one is One like, more hour, guys. Oh, my God. It feels We're like we've been here for free. three days. It's so true. But I think that's a great indicator of if you love your job is that yes. if, if the day flies by and you're yeah. in every conversation. I think so. Well, listen, it is a, an accomplishment, Booksmart. And 
it's a really good film, and it's not, I'm not qualifying that as first-time director film. It's just a really, really good, nuanced film. It's Thanks. original. So nice. And I'm so glad you came back, and I hope that we can talk again in four years. Oh, yeah, four years. This is what we're doing. Okay. Another therapy session. Okay. Even if the show's canceled, we'll just... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. We're just going to meet right here. <laughs> okay. It'll be like a Wendy's, and we'll just, exactly. like... Yeah. Wonderful. Fine. I love it. Thanks for doing this. Thanks. I'm so happy. Hey folks, that's our show. Go see Booksmart if you haven't yet. It's a great film, and also if you've never seen Meadowland, Olivia gives an absolutely harrowing and wonderful performance in that film. That was directed by Reed Morano. And if you haven't been to the off-camera website, well, as I do each time on the podcast, I'll tell you now. First off, I appreciate you tuning into this podcast. And if you've not yet subscribed, take a minute, go to the iTunes site, Subscribe to the show, and that way you'll never miss another episode. While you're there, leave us a rating and review. That way, more people can find out about the show. Now, on the off-camera website, you'll find that we are also a television show and a magazine, in addition to a podcast. You can find us on DirecTV's audience network, and we're on every Monday and Wednesday nights. But if you don't have DirecTV, you can also see our show by getting our television subscription package. For $4.99 a month, you can have access to every show we've ever made to watch as many times as you'd like on any device of your choosing. It's a great way to dive deep into the show and to see what you've been hearing. So take a minute and check all that out. Now, you can also find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I'm Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. If you subscribe to my Instagram page, you'll see all sorts of behind-the-scenes photographs from this very show. And many of you don't know that I'm also a photographer, and every guest that comes in, we sit down, we have this lovely conversation, and then we go next door into my studio, and we do some portraits. And you can see all those portraits on my Instagram page, and I like to think that it's all part of the portrait that we're making of the artist when they come into the show. So check all that out. I want to thank everybody that helps me out every week. Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, Kara Johnson, we couldn't do the show without these fine people. They've been with us for a long time and they work really hard. So thank you to all those folks and thank you to you for tuning in and being a part of this show. And be sure to join me next time when I sit down with actress Sienna Miller. I went to boarding school and you could take a pony and a rabbit to soften the blow of just utter abandonment. I also got in real trouble because, you know, the rabbits were not allowed to be. You can't mate your rabbit with another rabbit. But I sort of just discovered where babies came from, I think. And I got right. my rabbit, who was very pretty, and found the most handsome male rabbit, took it in the traveling hutch, ran behind the back of the bike shed. 30 seconds later, the deed was done. I got caught. I was shamed. I remember it. So embarrassed. But then one day I came down to the hutch and there were five baby bunnies and Irene Bain who was our Latin teacher came up to me and she went it was worth it. I first met Sienna in 2003 when I photographed her for her very first job a Fox show called Keen Eddie. I remember thinking at the time eh, this woman might have something special. Well little did I know she would become one of the most versatile and talented actresses of her generation and that her fame would cause such a stir that whole news empires would fall. In our fascinating conversation we look back at some of her indelible roles in films like Factory Girl, Interview, and American Sniper. 
We also discuss her tour de force performance in American Woman and what she plays a woman who gets put through the emotional ringer and comes out the other side stronger and more resilient. Sounds like art imitating life a bit, doesn't it? See you next time, off camera.